0: I am Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. He does. Do so you have your Bibles this morning? We're going to be moving to Mark chapter 11 and picking up in verse 27. So Mark 11, picking up in verse 27 today. Um, As we get ready to talk about that, let me kind of set the stage so you'll kind of get into your mind where we are and what's going on. Jesus often taught in parables, right? No revelation to everybody. We understand that Jesus did that uh, for several reasons, but one of the most obvious is that those who had ears to hear would hear and understand and could make application as they thought about it, as they pondered. Uh, Those who did not understand, those whose hearts were hardened, who did not have ears to hear, they would not understand and they would just continue to be frustrated. But more than anything, in a society where they didn't have newspapers and the Internet and all that kind of good stuff, what the parables did was serve as an opportunity for people to hear a story and to remember it. And to go home and talk about it and to talk around about it around campfires and around cooking fires, that conversation would fill their mind. And, and during the course of discussing it and, and 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 brothers and sisters engaging it, the meaning would really become clear and levels and layers of meaning would become clear. And that's why Jesus taught in parables. And it would confound those who were opposed to Jesus, the hard-hearted. And it would continually inspire those uh, who, who believed and those who were genuinely seeking truth. So for 2,000 years, the church has had opportunity to look back because of the work of of John, Mark, and and Matthew, and Luke, and and, and Peter, and James, and to hear what what Jesus taught and let them continue to teach us today. So that's what we encounter uh, when we encounter a parable. And the other thing, just to bear in mind as we set up, Jesus is delivering what you're about to hear and read in the temple courts. This isn't happening on the side of the road or in somebody's quiet house. This isn't happening on the side of a hill somewhere on the edge of the lake. This is happening on the temple mount, in the temple courts. And the people that are hearing this are hearing it from a rabbi who is respected and extremely popular. A rabbi who entered into the city to the cries of Hosanna, riding on the back of a fold, having come through the city uh, of unripe figs. and and has entered now into Jerusalem, being seen as a Messianic figure, as a preeminent rabbi. So these words are being heard by many. And you can understand that in his day and in his time, the audience to which he was speaking was an audience of probably 12 to 1,500 people, not 20 or 30 gathered around to hear a, a quiet little talk. So this is a big deal and a very public forum. And Jesus has brought this message to the temple, and that's where we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 to 33 to begin with. They came again to Jerusalem as He was walking in the temple. The chief priests and scribes and the elders came and asked Him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or from human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then, why don't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's move on a little bit and get the, the rest of the scene. We're going to move into chapter 12. Um, he began to talk to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a winepress and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to his tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and threatened him shamefully. Then he sent another, and they killed that one. He also sent many others, some they beat and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he come and kill the farmer and give the vineyard to others? Haven't you read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord, came about from the Lord, and is wonderful in our eyes. They, that's the Sadducees, were looking for a way to arrest him but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. Today's message is going to look at some of the following things, uh, really, really short. A stumped Sanhedrin, why? And are you allowing yourself to believe a lie or refusing to believe the truth? That's where we're going with this. Now on the surface you're probably thinking, how did you get those two points out of what we just read? Uh, but I promise you, that is the underlying message of what's happening in, uh, in these verses. So let's look at this in a little bit of depth. We're going to look at uh, four fundamental things uh, that we're going to come back to. Uh, so the one, two, three, four. So if you're a note taker, you'll want to put four big bulletin or big bullets there that will kind of fill in as we go through this. Um, let's think for just a second. These, these Sanhedrin, that's supposed to say Israel, not Is-tar-A-L, sorry about that. The great Sanhedrin were the official guardians of the law, and and vastly more, made up of Sadducees and priests and rabbis, teachers, people from major cities throughout the the nation of Israel and around the world. The Sanhedrin were 71 people who were the law keepers in Israel. Some things that they did when they met um, in in the city of Bethpage, uh, Bethpage, Bethpage, one of the things that they did was this, they said all of the feasts all of the holidays, and they also engaged in all the legal rambling or wrangling of things that would be going on with the law, the Talmud and the Mishnah, what became the Mishnah. As they were going through this, they would decide if this is right and this is wrong, and this is okay and this is bad, and this person's guilty and they're not. The Sanhedrin was the Supreme Court, the ruling authority, and the Congress all wrapped up in one. And sitting at the head of of this Supreme Court would be the high priest of the temple, Caiaphas in particular at this moment. So this Sanhedrin was an extraordinarily powerful cultural and legal body in their time. Understand, it was their responsibility and right to question Jesus. So it isn't as if they walked in there presumptuously like, hey, who do you think you are? It would be their responsibility if a new teacher, if a new rabbi was showing up teaching things that sounded inconsistent with the established law, prophets, and rabbinic tradition, which later would become the Mishnah. These three things are what they were there to guard. And if they were doing their guardly duty, this is precisely what they would be engaged in. A new rabbi shows up, a new teaching happens. They would call them into the court of the Sanhedrin. Now, there's two places the Sanhedrin met. One of them was, of course, in Bethphage, but the other one was on the Temple Mount in, a, in, a, in an area, a very, very uh, special room called the, the Court of the Hewn Stones. And this place was where the 71 Sanhedrin would sit in in a semicircle with the high priest at the middle, and then there would be two clerks that would sit on either side to record absolutely everything that was discussed. And there was a a gallery that people could come and could sit and can watch and could learn, mostly students who hoped to be rabbis one day or people who were uh, maybe the uh, second string Sanhedrin folks, like the number three person from this city or that city, uh, or other priests and, and important people. They would come and sit and listen and be a part of these decisions. And in in this court, there would be deliberations. So if you were called before the Sanhedrin, this is where you would come and sit. So if you hear the term, the scribes and the Pharisees, This is where this was happening. Do you see where the scribes would sit in the clerks' positions? The scribes and Pharisees would be sitting around and the audience would be out there, other rabbis and teachers. And this is where you would stand bare and alone and with no place to hide in front of the Sanhedrin to be questioned. And this is the place where Jesus would come on regular occasions to be questioned by this body. But hear me, this is their job. They're there to do that. And if their motives are pure... If what they're doing is truly guarding the law, the prophets, and the the rabbinic tradition, and they're doing it with holy hearts, with godly hearts, then the job that they are doing is sacred and good, right? In today's world, we don't necessarily have a Sanhedrin, but the great councils and the great synods of the past 2,000 years of Christendom have come together and they've metered through matters and they've compared it to the Scriptures and they've generated exactly the kind of thing that the Sanhedrin would have done. We have confessions and creeds, that Westminster Confession, the Second London Baptist Confession, the Apostles' Creed, things like that, the, the, the councils of Nicaea. They would come together and they would make declarations that they themselves were not Scripture, but they held to the scripture and illuminated the scripture for everyone else, and this is what the Sanhedrin was expected to do each year, and when new things would come. So, are you kind of getting a picture of where things are on the Temple Mount right now? Here comes Jesus, healing people. <laughs> what? That's not supposed to be able to happen. Here comes Jesus riding into town on a foal that had never been ridden by anyone else through the Sheep's Gate. On the thousandth anniversary of Solomon's coronation, having come through the city of Bethphage, everything he was doing was messianic. And the Sanhedrin were freaking out. Whoa, 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 whoa. You're doing all this messianic thing. People are singing, Hosanna, calling you the son of David. Who are you? And by what authority and what right are you doing these things? Do you understand that at this moment in time, we 21st century readers need to be exceedingly careful and make sure that we're looking at this accurately. Because chances are a great many of the people sitting in that Sanhedrin were genuinely going, are you? Could it be? Could, could this be the case? Where many others were sitting in there going, there's no way that guy is the great Messiah we're waiting for. And yet there's others sitting there going, we've heard this before. We just had this with Barcopa." we just had this with two or three others. The other Jesus who had come 75 years before claiming to be a Messiah and he had even used that same name, Yeshua, of Joshua and he had come and he had been a fraud and it led to lots of people being killed. Is this guy legit? Is this really what's supposed to be? Is this Jesus really the Messiah he claims to be? Let's be careful that we don't just assume that these are all nasty, mean closed-minded, hard-hearted curmudgeons who are sitting around with their law and pointing bony fingers at Jesus because chances are there were many in that group who were saying, I hope this is Him. But to whom will Jesus address this? How will Jesus engage it? He's going to engage it in parable. And He does that because those who have ears to hear will hear and begin to process. And those who are hard-hearted will be condemned at that moment. So that's where we are, and that's what's going on at this place. So the Sanhedrin are going to be stumped primarily because of the fact that they are coming here with hardened hearts. Now let me give you just a couple other things about these Sanhedrin that you need to understand before we we step forward. The Sanhedrin also had something that they did. They were the keepers of the genealogies. what what the Sanhedrin were responsible for was making sure that all the family lines were recorded and noted and kept because they were trying to put back together the tribes of Israel. They were trying at this point unsuccessfully to get back to before Babylon and track family lines and genealogies and lineages so they could hopefully restore all the 12, fa- the 12 tribes and the families of Israel and figure out who was from who so that sitting around the court of the Sanhedrin could be people from every tribe. That was their hope. Now we know historically that's just not possible, but they were trying. And so when they did understand a genealogy or attached themselves to a genealogy, they would hold on to it really fast, just clamp down on it, and figure if you're from the tribe of Levi, you're a Levite, you're a priest, you're special. And you deserve to be amongst the Sanhedrin. You deserve to have everything provided for you. You deserve to not have to work, but to have everything handed to you and to walk around in the finest vestiges and garments and and to walk around and have people, oh, you're a Levi. This is what they were wanting, this aristocracy, this blue-blooded type of feudalism that they were forming here through the Sanhedrin. So that's an element that plays into it. You're, you've heard this, these, these uh, ideas before. Let me draw your attention to it. When Paul um, is writing to Titus, who's going to become the pastor on the island of Crete, where there is a Jewish community, when Paul is talking to Titus, he says, avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about for the law, because they are What? Unprofitable and vain. You know what vain is a synonym for? Somebody, what's it mean? Pride. Say it louder. Who said that? Pride. Of course you did. Pride goes before a fall pride and this unprofitable behavior, this arrogance, this self-righteousness. This is what the Sanhedrin were guilty of. And this is what many of the Jewish elite had become guilty of. And Paul is telling Titus, don't you allow yourself as a leader, as an overseer of the churches here, to let pride enter into your character, into your behavior, son. If you do that, if you allow pride to rule in your heart, you will go down the same path as the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the, the keepers of the law before you. And rather than loving people, you'll seek to rule people and dominate people. And that's not the way God called you to lead. That's the message to Titus from Paul. And in many ways, it's the message that these Sanhedrin should have been hearing from Jesus. Uh, Woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees, you hypocrites. When Jesus says the word hypocrites, you understand he's using... Uh, a term that would have been very common to them. And for the very first time, it was used in the pejorative pejorative and the negative. When Jesus called them hypocrites, He said, you're just actors, you're just players. You're pretending to be one thing when you're another. And these are the indictments He had dropped on the Pharisees there on that Temple Mount. So the people sitting in this room, people sitting in the room, are diverse. Hopefully what I've done over this last 8 to 10 minutes has helped you understand the diversity and the complexity of this conversation. Did you get it? Did it sink in there? Are you understanding it's not just a group of people dressed in blue with silver trim standing there ready to to argue with Jesus, that there's a complex and dynamic uh, conversation taking place. And the best way to engage it would be to engage it in a way that everybody had to struggle with and everybody had to stop and think about. And that's precisely what Jesus the Messiah did. So four things. Jesus is going to bypass the surface matter exactly the way these investigators were doing. He went to a motives-exposing question. Now, what was that motives-exposing question? Jesus, Jesus is engaged in them, and what does He do? He says, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. Oh they're busted. Why are they busted? What are you talking about, Shannon? Here's why they're busted. John the Baptist was well-known and extremely popular. John the Baptist had had brought an indictment by definitely pointing a bony finger to, to Jerusalem and teaching in the wilderness and calling people to come and be baptized and to be washed away, washing these sins and these lifestyles and these sins away from you and purifying yourself before God and preparing your hearts for the Messiah. John had done remarkable things there in the wilderness and was especially well known and beloved by a great many people. The priests and the Pharisees were not among those people who loved John because John was calling them to lives of piety, which by its very nature was going to impact the way that the priests were able to live and and make their living. So when John comes and, and does what he does, the indictment now is on the Pharisees that you're lavish living rather than living simply, And taking care of the poor and loving the Lord with all of your heart, all of your mind, the Shema, right? What was happening now is these Pharisees were living lavishly and taking from the people and being hypocritical, not living the life they were demanding of other people. And John was calling everyone to repentance and opening their hearts and preparing the way for God. He was the voice crying in the wilderness that Isaiah had prophesied about. And John's primary calling and the primary indictment he was making against these Pharisees was he's saying, the prophets have come and you have killed them. You have no legitimacy to be the leaders here. You are not... The true Israel. You are not the real Levites. This is John's indictment against Jerusalem. And by doing so, he was leading what we might refer to as a reformation in Judaism. Get it? So in this thing, he has become very unpopular with those in authority, but wildly popular to the commoners and to the average people and the small-time rabbis and Pharisees and the small-town leaders and synagogue leaders because they're saying, oh, my goodness, you're right, John. This is true. The, the elite have done these things and they are oppressing us and they are in an unholy alliance with Rome. And this is, this is why the, the discussion around John was huge. So when Jesus asked this question of him, what he did was he was saying, No, we're not going to have another one of these things where you play your role and suppress everybody else. What we're going to have is I'm going to ask you a question that goes right to the core of the matter. Do I have a right to speak from the Scriptures, do I have a right to be God or are you God? Do you get to determine who's God and what God may do? That's the heart of the question. And in order to ask it the most creative way possible and create a conversation everybody could have, he asked him, who sent John? (laughs) So now the Pharisees are stuck. They're stuck, and they have to make a decision, and it's especially public. And so now remember where they are. They are in the court of hewn stones. They're in this place where where he's being questioned. Now our our imagination says he's out there teaching in the portico like he always did, and they came forward and asked him a question. But the probability, the most likely scenario, is that this is taking place over hours and hours and hours. They asked him to come and to stand before him, and they asked him that question, uh, by whose authority do you do these things? How is, how is Who gave you the right to do this? And he asked them a question. That's why they went into discussion and later couldn't answer. You understand? This is now happening in this court. This is where he will embarrass them, in their own courtroom. So in that place, he asked that question. Bede, uh, as he was writing about this in 704, this is uh, B.D. the Venerable, one of the great leaders of the church uh, in Alexandria. Uh, B.D. had this to say. He said, fearing a stoning. Now, by the way, if Jesus was determined to be a false prophet, okay, they would have to stone Him in accordance with the law. You get that? Okay. If they're going to stone Him, they are going to do it, outside in the court of the Gentiles or outside the temple itself right in view of the Antonia Fortress right there in Jerusalem. So the Romans are going to see this happening and the Romans are going to go berserk because you have no right to do an execution or have that kind of a mob violence without the permission of Rome. And so the Sanhedrin recognized if they follow the law right now they're going to prompt the anger of Rome. their buddies with whom they're in league. If they let it go they're going to have to violate the law. <laughs> so at this moment in time, here's what Beatty had to say. Fearing a stoning, but fearing an admission of the truth, they answered the truth with a lie. Reminiscent of the Scripture, Injustice hath lain within herself, have lied within herself, for they have said we know not. You see, the Sanhedrin had to lie in order to maintain their lie. And they had to lie publicly. And they were shamed because they knew at that moment in time they could not answer Jesus' question honestly because it would be an indictment against themselves. B.D. W- went on to say um, they did it for two reasons. They had, they had to wrongfully... Um, hang on, let me see. This, I had to get down here. Um, in this way, knowledge is hidden from those who wrongly seek it principally for two reasons. First when the one who seeks it does not have sufficient capacity to understand what he is asking for. And second, when through contempt for the truth, one is unworthy of having the subject of his inquiry explained. So they were left in disgrace. That was pretty well handled. I mean, if Jesus had just flatly said, I'm the Messiah, they could have debated that. And they would have used all their things. It, he, could, he could have asked him. He could have said, I have this authority because I'm the son of God. He could have done that. And for all of history, we would have a declaration in Scripture that everybody could be happy with. Jesus said, I am God. He could have done that. But if it's given to you, you just don't respect it as much because it's easy. How many of you had to buy your first car? Just curious. Go ahead. Go ahead. Nothing to be ashamed of. Okay. Okay. Now, how many of you were given your first car? Okay, How many of you who were given your first car were incredibly proud of it and took great care of it? Normal, to some extent. yeah. Is that the typical human experience, though? How about your clothes? When your parents bought you your clothes, did you take wonderful, super great care of them? Or did you take better care of the clothes you had to pay for yourself? Anybody raising teenagers right now? Anybody have a boy? I'm going to say just because I have a minute here. I bought Will, uh, Kim and I bought Will um, two pairs of jeans. We went over you know, to the store with the, the Oshkosh or whatever it was down there. at the, And we got him two cool pair of jeans. Really nice ones, right? And uh, he's like, ooh, I like my jeans. And we put them on to and I sent him off to school Monday morning. Monday, Monday afternoon, 3.35, I'm picking up. He comes off the bus, and the knees are ripped out of these brand spanking new jeans. I'm like, what happened to your jeans? Huh? Oh, No. They're brand new. What, 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 how in the world did you do that? I oh, don't know. So I bought patches and I put patches on those jeans. And those patches are threadbare across the front, but they're still there. And he doesn't care because he's seven. You know, it doesn't matter. But here's what's going to happen when he's about, oh, what, 14? Who's got teen boys? When does it happen? 14? 19? When do they start caring? Jordan, when did you start caring? Have you started caring? But, a day is going to come when they're going to start thinking, think, well, i don't take a little pride in what I have. I'm going to buy the nice jeans. You know, we got Jordan over there. He's going off to you know, the expensive stores in the mall, paying for the big jeans. Yeah, the really fancy ones with the rhinestones because he's that guy. That's right. He's real proud of those jeans now. He's not going to kneel down and fix a tire. He's going to be like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me put something down there real quick, and then, then he'll do it. And I like to imagine in the back of my mind that one day Will's going to do that. Those Pharisees could have handed, they could have had it handed to them, okay? Do you think it would have made a difference? Do you think it would have, they'd have cared if Jesus said, I am the Messiah, I am the Hosanna, I am the Christ, I am the fulfillment of the law, and here's the 4011 reasons why that you can find in your scripture. He could have done that. And it would have been easy for them at that moment to accept or reject based upon that thing. But what Jesus did is He forced them to have to wrestle With the real heart of the matter. Who is God and who's on the throne? That was the real question. And to those who came to that understanding correctly, Nicodemus and several of the others that we know about historically, when they came to that understanding, they owned it and they held it with great passion and great belief. And they took it with them to their graves. And and they taught and they stood by that because he was the Messiah, he is the Messiah. And that's what John's trying to get across to all of us. But you have to answer that question honestly, who am I? The next thing that happened uh, that we need to be paying attention about in this, in this court is that Jesus has entered into that court of hewn stones with the Sanhedrin, and he's engaging that high court in the very manner that they were asking him in this, in this wrangling, in this creative little, uh, little uh, judo match. And and as they're asking him these questions, he's going to answer them. But he, he is a commoner, a peasant from Nazareth. Who does he think he is? I don't care if you do think you're from the line of David. You are nothing. You're from Nazareth. You're a waste of space. How dare? They saw the people of Nazareth as less than human, lower, an animal form that had no right really to even engage with the great Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Who do you think you are? A little lower than a a human being and maybe a little better than an animal, but you're nothing special. You're from Nazareth. And this very attitude had come from somebody whose family was from the blue-buddy class. It had come from Bartholomew and Nathaniel's family. And and they had asked that very question, "Who, Who do you think you are? You're from Nazareth. And this kind of prejudice, this kind of uh, cultural, subcultural racism that's going on in their society is another thing Jesus was overcoming when He walked into that Sanhedrin's uh, court. So don't let that slip by you. The next thing, God does not reveal further truth if we have rejected the truth, truth which has already been revealed. Now, John seven seventeen, Romans ten seven, 7, uh, these verses play in right at this moment. Um, and they are especially important. Here are these words. Um, if anyone wants to do God's will, he will, know, um, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own. And then in Romans 10, 17 famously, So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus had already engaged this question, and He had engaged it by using Scripture itself. And He had spoken back to them saying, listen, um, The truth has already been revealed. It's in that Old Testament for you. Now, we have a habit um, as people. It's a really nasty one, and you might be guilty of this. You might have a copy of the New Testament somewhere. Don't raise your hands. Do you have one of those? Has somebody sold you the idea that the New Testament is the Bible for Christians and the only part you need, and that's the one you should have and study from? Whereas the Old Testament is that old God Listen, this is the old Marcion heresy revealed again. This is the Old Testament. It's the old thing. It's not the new thing. It's what was, not what is. The God of the Old Testament really isn't the God of the New Testament. That's different back then from now. We don't have to follow that law anymore. It's all been removed. And so it, we don't need to read it since it doesn't apply to us anymore. We only need the re- root. Many of us have fallen victim to that lie. And listen, it's a diabolical one because the god of the old testament is the god of the new testament it's the same god a different covenant the covenant of law the covenant of grace we sometimes call it by the way be careful with those terms but just you know we'll use them for now the covenant of the law the covenant of grace we we look at things that way and so we feel that somehow the old testament isn't relevant to our lives and nothing could be farther from the truth because it's the old testament and the prophets and the laws that will point to jesus and illuminate the fact he is the messiah And when we understand the Old Testament, understand the law, and understand the grace of God and what He gave, and understand the promise with Adam and of Abram and of Isaac and Jacob and Esau and David and Solomon, then we start to see who Jesus is, the complete fulfillment of that law. That's who He is. And so Jesus is saying, God's not going to reveal further law until you've come and understood What's there? I'm sorry, I meant to say truth, not law. When we understand the Old Testament, we see Jesus for who He is. And this is what the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin were incapable of doing at this minute. Hear me, truth was in front of them, and they refused to acknowledge it. They were looking at the truth through a set of lenses. They had created glasses for themselves. Now, we don't do that today, do we? We don't have the Scripture in front of us and look at it through cultural lenses, do we? We don't hear the truth of God and, and look at the truth of God in His Word and then apply my American culture and value and ideas over top of the Scripture and read the Scripture through those lenses. We don't do that, do we? Because surely, surely, intelligent people, that's exactly what the Sanhedrin were doing. They were creating their culture of their ideas and they were allowing the people to understand it only through their lenses rather than letting the scripture speak for themselves. And that's why Jesus was saying scripture um, has to be understood. Truth has to be understood in order for you to see who I really am. And then fourthly, the ultimate dilemma for the Sanhedrin was that um, was not what was truth or what was right, but what was safe and prosperous and that is so often the approach with the hypocrite and the charlatan. Jesus uses a term in the midst of this. It's a harsh one, and he goes back to, uh, to a previous scripture where he had, he had used this. Let me see if I can pull it up for you here real quick. It came from Matthew. Um, Jesus said, um, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, uh, by the way, this is, this is John the Baptist talking at this moment, Okay. Um, he's coming to his baptism, is John. He says, brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit that is consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children from Abraham from those stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree who doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Um, John goes on to talk about his baptism, and this kind of harkens back to what I was telling you about John a little earlier and why Jesus asked that question. But John did a couple of things in his reproach and his attack of those uh, Sanhedrin members who were coming to be baptized there. He called them a brood of vipers, which equated them with the snake and the deceiver in the garden. That went over well. And the next thing he did is he used this term, Uh, He used an illustration, um, and this is not a a fluffy bunny kind of an illustration. This is a striking, harsh illustration. It's the kind of rugged illustration that nobody would be able to get away from, and it would really shock them. And he talks about taking an axe to the root. Now, you start talking about an axe, you're going to get people's attention. By the way, I brought one today. Where'd it go? Put it right over here. Thanks, Andrew, for letting me borrow it. If the pastor starts swinging an axe around on stage, right, this is going to get some attention, right? If I start swinging it around wildly, people are probably going to move off the front rows, right? (laughs) The axe, this tool um, is not subtle, is it? Right? The axe is an implement to do great destruction quickly, to achieve a task quickly. And if Jesus starts talking about an axe and And a sword. What's happening is he's letting people know some things are going to be separated violently. And when the ax drops and hits, destruction is going to happen and the job is done. And you're not going to go back and undo it. It's permanent damage. And when Jesus says the ax is laid to the root, quoting John, When the axe is laid to the root, damage is going to be done. Things are going to happen that are going to be abrupt, they're going to be rugged, and they're going to be permanent. And at this point in time, Jesus is saying, your days, Pharisees and Sadducees, of holding the law, of deceiving the people, of being the children of Abraham and being the Israel you think you are, you lying brood of vipers, you hypocrites, those days are over. The axe is laid to the root. Whew. This is some intense language. This is what's happening in the court of the, un- of the hewn stones. This is what's taking place at that moment. This is what people are hearing, and this is why the Sadducees are going to get so angry because there's no hiding from the indictment that Jesus has dropped on them. Great conversation is going to follow. Lots of it. And here's why. Because what Jesus has done in this moment has eliminated the opportunity for them to be able to hide behind their heritage, to hide behind the law, to hide behind the culture. Now, they have to wrestle with a question. Is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, or is He not? And what indicted so many of them was, they couldn't answer that question honestly. They had to lie to themselves. Welcome to the 21st century. Today we have some questions we need to engage. This Bible, this book, is it the truth? Is what it says something that we need to give our attention to and surrender ourselves to? Are there lies that we've believed? Are there areas of pride and vanity and uselessness that we've attentioned ourselves to rather than hearing the truth of God's Word? Do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and our strength and love our neighbors as ourselves? Or are there other ways that that we're living? Is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God? Is the Bible truth? Or have we believed that the Constitution of the United States and the decisions of the Supreme Court and our rights and privileges as Americans and our almighty dollar and, and, and what's mine is more important than Scripture? Have we said that having an open mind to ideas and people is more important than what Jesus has had to say? Have we indicted against the Bible saying, well, it was a cultural book, and that may have been true then but you know we're we're much more enlightened now. Are we doing things like that? Are we believing that you know I could forgive but I'm not going to because you know it's my right to be able to be offended or they did me wrong so I have the right to hold a grudge. Do we play that game? Because you see that's a lie. Do we choose to hate people? Because the Bible doesn't teach us that. It teaches us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Hmm. Do we figure that people just get to, you know, they do what's good for them and I'll do what's good for me and, and we just stay back because we don't want to offend anybody? Or Do we do that? Because that's, inconsist- that's a lie we've told ourselves. Friends, there's all kinds of lies we tell ourselves with. And if we stood in front of Jesus and He asked the question, who do you say I am? Am I God? Is my word absolute truth? Or are you the one sitting in your Sanhedrin court determining what you will say is true and what you will say was a a lie or is a lie? Are you making your decisions based upon your culture or upon your relationship with the Messiah? You can see, that's the question that the Sanhedrin had to ask, and they failed. How about you? Dana, as you're coming back up to play, let let me ask you this. Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? Would you just take a minute... In this time of silence, in this time of focus, would you take a minute and begin to ask some questions of yourself about some of the lies that that we believe? Have Have you come to believe that you have to work for your forgiveness before God? Have you told yourself the lie that if I'm just good enough, if I just do enough good works, just enough good deeds to offset the bad, that God will find me good and He'll be happy with me. Our friend, have you understood that that when you were still a sinner, Christ died for you? That there's none righteous, not even one. And that God loved you even when you were a sinner. And that you're not made righteous by your works, Mm -hmm. but by faith. Have you believed the lie maybe today that God doesn't care about the small things in your life? And so you don't go to your Lord in prayer. You just try to handle it on your own. Maybe you came here today with a whole lot of small things that have built up in your heart and your life that are taking away your happiness. Maybe you've believed that your private sin doesn't hurt anyone. Oh, foolish friend, be sure your sins will find you out. Friend, believe me that sin separates us from God. Not that He turns His back on us, but we turn our back on Him. And like Adam and Eve in a garden, clothing themselves in the very leaves of their sin, they ran from God. Who was seeking them? And your private sin separates you from God and why nobody around you may ever find out, it certainly separates you from your loving Father. Those things in your life, those things that you think are too important, you could never give up for God if He asked, like a rich, young ruler, would you acknowledge that you're living in idolatry? You see, there's so many lies we believe, brothers and sisters. Like that Sanhedrin, we need to let him go and acknowledge Jesus is God, Jesus is Messiah. Father God, as we've gathered this morning, it's our heart's desire to be able to answer you with honesty the way that Sanhedrin couldn't. John's baptism was from you God. Jesus is the Messiah. We are called to submit ourselves to him. God, we ask that you would give us the the strength, the bravery, to take an axe to the root of our sin. God, to strongly and definitively put to death those things in our life which are are growing into deeper sins, vines that are choking out our relationship with you. God, that we would lay the axe to those And speak truthfully, God, they are sin and I love you more than them. Lord, I pray that that kind of boldness would would overcome us today. That we would be able to love you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And love our neighbors as ourselves. God, this is our prayer before you, our Lord and our Savior this morning. Amen.